0: We're starting a, a new series today called "The Way of Jesus," um, and we're in that series. We're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, um, and also some of the other ethical sermons that Jesus gave in the in the Gospel of Matthew, which are are profound and life changing. So, um, today, though, we're going to be turning to the Gospel of John as sort of an introduction to this series, um, and we're going to look at John chapter six, verses sixty six through sixty nine. Uh, Let me me read it for us now. John 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're starting this new series, The Way of Jesus, uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and feeling like it's a significant time to do this. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most important parts of the entire New Testament because it's the longest stretch of of Jesus' preaching ministry and and the ethics of his kingdom. The church in the United States, uh, as you are probably well aware, has experienced a great fracturing. And while ordinarily such divisions in the church are due to differences in doctrine or theology or things like that, what we're seeing today is the divisions in our culture and within the church are largely cultural and political instead of theological and doctrinal. And as we deal with issues of great concern, some of which... Uh, induce great free, fear and frustration. And so there's a great temptation in fear and anger. And have you ever noticed how connected fear and anger are? Think about <laughs> the connection sometime between fear and anger and how much they're intertwined. Uh, as we deal with issues of great concern, some of which are causing great fear, great great. Uh, you know, uh, anxiety and even anger, there's a temptation to walk in the ways of this world instead of the way of Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount is going to help us significantly with this. As we deal with issues in culture that are alarming and cause fear, there is a way to respond that is within the way of Jesus. And what we'll see, the walking in the way of Jesus is far more about being than doing. It's, it's really who you are as a person and the fruit of your heart that is spilling out uh, would indicate whether you're actually walking uh, in the way of Jesus or the way of the kingdoms of this world. In James 3... Uh, The apostle James, who's also the the brother of Jesus, says that there is a wisdom that is from above, uh, which is from Christ and can be described as a wisdom that is pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere that's the fruit of Christ. That is the wisdom that's from above. And, and he says that there is a harvest of righteousness that is sown by those who make peace. James 3. Study it sometime. Read it even today. It's beautiful. But he also warns of a wisdom that is from below, a wisdom that is from Christ, that's from above, that is peaceable uh, and is full of love and the fruit of the Spirit. But there's also, he warns, a uh, a wisdom that is from below, and he calls that unspiritual, and he even goes on to call it demonic. And that wisdom he describes as jealousy, selfish, boastful, and divisive. And so as we seek the peace and the purity of the church and the peace and purity of our nation and, and have fears and worry and concerns about what we're seeing in culture, if we sow division, discord, anger, and jealousy, we're, we're not walking in the way of Jesus, according to the Apostle James. Instead, we would be walking with this wisdom from below, which is ultimately, James would call, demonic. Our fears and concerns, ultimately, they don't give us permission to behave in a way that's not within the way of Jesus. So why are we doing this series? Why now? And I think it ought to be somewhat self-evident, right? I mean, we've gone through some stuff, have we not? As a nation, as a culture, as, as the people of God. We've, we've been through some things. So I think when I address issues like this, sometimes people wonder, like, are you worried that we as a local congregation have been uniquely bad about this? Like, are, are you concerned that we are being divisive? And I want to say this, actually, the opposite is true. And I want to thank truly, from the bottom of my heart, the Lord, for that reality, and also you as a people, that um, in light of the fact, I I am friends with a lot of ministers around the nation and in the city, and I feel, if anything, uh, we have enjoyed a unique unity and love towards one another, in spite of the fact that we as a church are not an echo chamber. And what I mean by that is this is not Uh, an all-red church or an all-blue church. Uh, We are thinking about things differently on politics and culture, and yet we have enjoyed a unity here and a love for one another, even though we've gone through some really difficult things in culture and as a nation, as a church. I want to turn to this series instead to keep striving for the Spirit to bear fruit and to cast vision for what the church can be as people are so disheartened about the state of the church, and rightfully so. There's much to be saddened about in the state of the church, and yet Jesus is so good. That's what we're going to be talking about today. The Lord is so good. His church is meant to be beautiful, and we get to be that. And so this is to keep casting a vision of what we, not just New Valley, but what the body of Christ is meant to be in the world, even under pressure, even difficult and tumultuous times, filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Light has shown on a lot of things in the church that need to change. We've been saying that. And in light of that, it's common for people to say that they are deconstructing what they believe. And deconstruction is a phrase that can feel unsettling, right? Some people are using it to mean, I have torn down my faith. Like, there's nothing left of my faith. I, I've, I have, I've, I've done demolition to it all. I'm just done. I'm done with Christianity. If we took a poll in this room today, I'm guessing all of us has a family member or a friend or a neighbor or somebody that has deconstructed their faith and are saying, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm sure, I bet almost every one of us in this room has had that experience. Others, though, are using this phrase to mean like there's things that need to be changing. There are things that need to be deconstructed. Like when you're doing a renovation in your home, you got to do some demo. Some of the funniest videos from the last couple of years in our life is our demolition videos. As we got out a sledgehammer, and it's kind of sad in a way, but it's also really fun. Like you're tearing, because it's sad for the memories. We're very sentimental as a family. But Becky and I took a sledgehammer and tore out our kitchen. Like uh, it was, it's really weirdly fun uh, to, to just like start knocking everything down. But you're tearing down not in order just to like burn it all to the ground, you're tearing it down in order to get down to the foundation, right? To do what? rebuild something that's more beautiful. Something, something that is, is a beautiful thing, not just torn down to nothing. Building on a foundation, getting down to the foundation and building. And for us, the foundation is Jesus. There are things, so many bad things happening in the church and in culture that need to be torn down, to be removed, to get down to the foundation, which is Christ, and rebuild on him. As our foundation. In John 6, Jesus began to teach that he was the bread of life. He even compared himself to the manna of the Old Testament that God provided for the people of God. That was offensive to his audience. He said, I am the living bread, and if anyone eats this bread, they will live forever. Who on earth says anything like that? This is why C.S. Lewis famously said he's either a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. You don't have any other options. He, he's either lying because he's not the bread of life. He's crazy because who else says that? Or he's telling the truth, and he's actually the bread of life, the living God. In John fourteen six, he went on to say, I am the way, the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I mean, these are exclusive claims, right? And many of his disciples walked away and quit following him because of the exclusivity of his claims. And so he turned to his 12 disciples and asked them, do you want to go away as well? And they're struggling. I would imagine so. They've given up so much to follow Jesus. And at times it was terrifying. He kept talking about him dying. He kept predicting his death. And they they couldn't get their mind around that. He was a suffering servant, and they had no concept for that whatsoever. Do you want to go? Do you want to leave? Everyone else is leaving. Do you want to leave? And, and, and then finally Peter says, uh, to whom shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to know and to believe that you are the Holy One of God. I have this friend in my life, um, and I'm really fortunate to have a lot of pastor friends in my life, and. Uh, I've got an older friend uh, who has been a pastor for a long time, and he's been a seminary president, and he calls me just a couple times a year just to check up on me, see how I'm doing. Can we have coffee? You know, what a great thing. And so this man came, he came over to the church this year, and we were talking and having coffee, and we were lamenting and, and mourning together the reality that so many people are walking away from their faith altogether, not just tearing down that which is bad, but walking away for good. And he said exactly what has been on my heart. He said, I just want to say to folks like this, but what about Jesus? I get that all, there's so much wrong. There's so much bad. There's so much stuff that's, that needs to be changed and light needs to be exposed on it. But, but don't give up Jesus. To whom shall we go? And I mean that, and not as judgment to them, because truly, there's been great harm that's been done. I understand why people's faith is struggling so badly in the tumult that we've gone through. And yet, I just plead with you, friends, if if that's where your heart is and you're really starting to doubt your faith, don't leave Jesus. He's too good. He has the words of eternal life. And so much of what we're seeing as we, study, as we study the Sermon on the Mount together, so much of what we're going to see is the, the, the stuff, the darkness, the evil, the wrong that's being done, even in the church, it, it's not the way of Jesus. It's the opposite of the way of Jesus. So the, the disciples walked away. Many. We're not talking about the 12, but many of these other followers walked away because of the exclusivity of Jesus' claims. And so today I wanted to introduce our new series and basically say, to whom shall we go? Ultimately, this is a series about going back to Jesus and saying, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. He's good, beautiful, and true. Let's rebuild a foundation on who he is. But I also want to wrestle with this question today of the exclusivity of Jesus. Because we're saying, let's walk in the way of Jesus. And that implies that there is a way. And yet for so many people, there's this defeater to faith, which is Christianity is way too exclusive. I could never be in a religion or a faith that is so exclusive like Christianity, because Christianity says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How can there just be one way? Uh, Islam believes there's one way to God and it's their way. Christianity, Judaism are all very exclusive, but so is Mandalorianism, right? It is the way. <laughs> How can there just be one true faith? People say, and it's arrogant to believe that your religious beliefs are the way. And I want to explore this. and I want to recommend a couple books to you. One is The Reason for God by Tim Keller, and uh, this sermon is largely going to be based on, on a lot of what he has said, but also a newer book that I've been reading by Rebecca McLaughlin called Confronting Christianity, where she takes on a lot of the same questions that people wrestle with with faith. Fantastic books. Tim Keller describes a time when he sat on a panel with ministers from uh, the different world religions in New York City. And one young man stood up and addressed all of them, saying, the doctrinal differences between all the religion, world religions don't matter because in the end, you all believe the same thing. Um, and Keller goes on uh, to, to say and ask him, would you please describe to me Uh, The God that you mean? Uh, Can you describe that God to me? And the young man said, he is the all-loving spirit of the universe. He goes on to say in his book, the problem with this position uh, is this. It's, It's inconsistency. It insists that doctrine is unimportant, but at the same time assumes doctrinal beliefs about the nature of God that are at loggerheads with those of all the major faiths. Buddhism doesn't believe in a personal God at all. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam believe in a God who holds people accountable for their beliefs and practices and whose attributes could not be uh, all reduced to just love. God is most certainly love, but he's also altogether righteous, for example. And ironically, the, the insistence that doctrines do not matter is a doctrine, is it not? The belief that all religions are the same is just as great a truth claim as saying that Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is sort of the one big takeaway I I want you to understand is that when you are claiming that all truth claims about God are relative, that in itself is an absolute truth claim. One of the things that people often say, and maybe you believe this, is each religion sees part of a spiritual truth, but none can actually see the whole thing. And there's a well-known story that goes along with this statement of belief. Maybe maybe you've heard it. There are several blind men that are walking around and they come upon an elephant. How they do that, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they're, it's a blind guy day at the zoo. I'm not sure, but... Blind. several blind men are walking along and they come to an elephant and one of them feels the trunk and, and decides, I'm touching a snake. And another comes upon the leg of a, an elephant and his feeling is, no, it's a tree. It's a tree. Each blind man can only envision part of the elephant and none of them were able to envision the whole elephant or claim to have the truth. And basically this story is saying the world religions are like that they're blind first of all right <laughs> and they only see their part or they only can feel their part but they're all basically describing the thing same thing but from a different perspective or vantage point But how can you know that each blind man only sees part of the elephant unless you claim to be able to see the whole elephant yourself Who is the person with the sight The world religions are blind, but it's you, it's your view that says, no, they're all saying the same thing. How could you possibly know that no one religion has the truth unless you yourself have superior knowledge than everybody else, which would include the vast majority of the world? So on the one hand, this point of view sounds humble. None of us know the complete truth, and there's a humility in that. But in the end, it's just as exclusive a claim as Jesus is Lord. The next thing that I've heard many times people say is is it's arrogant to believe that your religious beliefs are the way. This is all basically saying similar things, but many people believe that any exclusive truth claim regarding spiritual uh, reality cannot be true. But again, can you not see, friends, this itself is uh, an exclusive truth claim. It's the absolute belief that there are no absolutes. It's the absolute certainty that there is absolutely no certainty. This belief has many doctrinal components and requires faith as well. Like, let's admit, if you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you don't come to that uh, only by reason. There is an element where you have to have faith. But this truth claim that there is no absolute truth or certainty about religious belief or philosophy is also just as much a faith jump as any others. You're having to believe that God doesn't exist at all or um, is unknowable. If God exists and and he is only loving but has no judgment, these are doctrinal claims. God is an impersonal force rather than a person who would speak through a person or, or scripture. All of these are just as unprovable as believing that Jesus is the son of God. That view is an exclusive claim, and if all exclusive claims about God are to be rejected, then this one should also be rejected, right? Finally, don't exclusive claims cause people to feel superior and to mistreat others? Don't exclusive claims cause people to feel superior and to mistreat others? Answer, yes, they often do. They really do. They often do. Even, and even within Christianity, because here's the thing, we're talking about truth issues here, right? And so we believe the Bible, for example, is God's word. And, and if you're not careful, you can begin to believe that you're the sole interpreter of God's word. It's a fully authoritative word, we believe, from God, uh, inspired to the Holy Spirit. And yet we do have to interpret it. And some people believe that they are the only ones who have interpreted everything, and the older I am and the longer I've walked with God, there is things that are super, super clear in the Bible that are, that are sort of the summation of what is Orthodox Christianity. And there are so many things upon which we can rest and, and even fight for and, and have closed fists and say, yes, this is true. This is essential. But there are so many other things that are non-essential that there ought to be grace towards one another. And, 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 and people are going to differ. For example, on baptism, it shouldn't be a thing we fight about, right? But uh, we don't all agree on who should be baptized, how much water should be baptized, should children be included, should they not be included? All these different issues, is there only one way to interpret these things? Some people say yes, that can lead to a view of superiority. We know that world religions, if you believe you have the absolute truth and you're the arbiter of truth and that you are a good person because you're the arbiter of truth, then of course you're going to believe yourself is you are superior to someone else. Now, the core message of Christianity, though, is this. It begins with the belief that all people were created equally in the image of God. And so therefore, whoever you're dealing with in life as a human being is an image bearer and should be dealt with with respect and honor because they are fellow image bearers of the living God. So even if we differ on worldview or philosophy or faith, uh, people ought to be treated not as less than and that you're the superior because they are literally created in the image of God. We also believe that people are fallen and that, in fact, all people are fallen, and that sounds very negative, but we believe that all have fallen short of the glory of God, but that includes us. And so sin is not out there. It's not outside these doors Sin is in here. If if sin, if all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and sin is not a outside of us problem, but a heart problem, and Jesus made that very clear that it's a heart issue, then sin is not out there somewhere, it's here. Right here in me and in you. So the religious person says, I am right. I am righteous. I I am following the way. I am doing the right things. I'm a good person. Thank God I'm not a sinner like those people, right? Like the Pharisees. But the person who understands the Christian gospel believes Jesus is the way, and yet my life can often be described as wayward. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O Lord, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We just sang that this morning. The person who understands and believes the Christian gospel believes there is a right way but has had to repent every week at church if they go here because they've not walked on the right way. That in spite of our best attempts, I'm often walking the wrong way. My hope is not that I am saving myself by my own righteousness. The Christian gospel is that I could never save myself by my own righteousness. It required the life and the death of the Son of God in order to make me right with him. He literally had to live a perfectly righteous life before a holy God, first and foremost, because we just confessed, forgive us. We, have not, we haven't even loved our neighbor as ourselves, let alone our, you know, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us have done that. We have not sought the flourishing of our neighbor to the same extent that we seek our own flourishing. We've never done that. And so the Christian message is this. It took the life and the death and the resurrection of the Son of God to make us right with God. And he did all of that. But we're saved by mercy. We're saved by grace. And so the way of Jesus and the people of God is to walk with humility. And so, yes, while believing there is a way can make you feel superior If you're believing the Christian gospel, it should absolutely never, ever make you feel superior. And so, if you're a believer and you find yourself feeling superior to other people who don't agree with you or seem worse than you, you're failing to believe the gospel in that moment and you're not walking in the way of Jesus. Jesus himself would say, repent and turn from that. Like Repentance literally means to turn around, to do a 180, to stop in the way you're going and to turn around with humility and say, I'm made right with God by grace and grace alone. It's by grace alone, and you may experience, you should experience as a follower of Jesus, God through the Holy Spirit is going to be maturing you and growing you and changing you and making you a new creation. But if that happens and you're seeing your character actually change, it's not because you're so great, even though it definitely involves your effort, it's all by the grace of God. You were saved by grace. You're made right by grace. And any sanctification that you're experiencing, even though it includes your hard effort and so forth is still ultimately all because of God's grace in your life. How can we feel superior towards anyone? And if you are an unbeliever, you may say, yeah, but what all, Christians have oppressed people, and Christians are acting superior, and there's self-judgment, you know, there's judgmentalism, and there's hypocrisy, and so forth. And I would say this for the sake of time today. Jesus once warned a group of very religious people in the Bible Pastors, Pharisees, he said this. Many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we preach in your name, do good works in your name, serve the poor in your name, uh, go to the hospital in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me. Why? For I never knew you. There are people, friends, who say that they're following God that are a part of God's way that are not a part of God's way. And there's a scary day coming of of judgment for that. For those who are wrestling with their faith, struggling to believe, what do I believe? How can I believe this? How can there only be one way? Is there a way? Is Jesus the way? I beg you, as you see all the stuff that needs to change in the church, and you're right, so much needs to change. But as you see it, Jesus is so good. I want to say to you, what about Jesus? To whom shall you go? He has the words of eternal life. Have you come to see that he's the Holy One of God? He's full of goodness and beauty and truth. And we will see that as we study this beautiful sermon, the Sermon on the Mount together, and and various other sermons from the Gospel of Matthew. To whom shall we go if not to him? He has the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we we come to you asking for forgiveness for all the ways in which the followers of Jesus have have not walked in the way of your path, have failed to show the world how beautiful you are. But I pray that you'd fill us as a church with excitement and joy as we have an opportunity to be light and to be a joyful body that points people to the goodness of your Son. In spite of all the ways his beauty has been muted by us, Father, would you help us to clearly reflect his goodness and joy that Jesus is still good? To whom else would we go? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.